If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11 this morning. Romans chapter 11, we're going to be looking at the the final verses of this chapter. Romans chapter 11. This morning as we gather together, we do so in the shadow of history. We would not be here today save for a multiplicity of events that have already taken place in the world and in our own lives. In that sense, we're not just aware of history, we are in fact debtors to history. But a foundational question that arises from that is this, what shapes history? What moves it along? What keeps it going, ensures that it comes to pass? And the Christian answer is not a what, but a who. Today we are thinking and celebrating even the reformation of the church in the 16th century and beyond. And today as we hear about men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Oryx Zwingli and John Knox, we can appreciate their efforts and acknowledge our debt to them because we know who it is that stands behind all of their accomplishments. We know who it is that drove their lives and their teachings and their ministries. It was, in fact, God himself, even as he stands behind all of history. And so as men and women like these reformers and so many others during their time, we must come to understand that it is, in fact, God himself who stands at the center of all things. One of the ways that has been, it's been helpful for the, the church to think about these things and to understand them has been from some of the theological shorthand that came out of the Reformation. That is, short, memorable phrases that have allowed uh, even the common people to know this is, what we're, this is what we're saying the church has lost and why it needs to be recovered, why change needs to happen, specifically in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the great Reformation was really all about. It was a move to go back to the Bible and to see more clearly the gospel of Christ and the salvation that's offered there. And so the, the theological shorthand, the, the, these five slogans that came about were, were these in Latin, the kind of academic language of the day. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Grazia, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. These are, in English, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And again, all of these things were tied to the gospel. They were saying, this is how we come to know God. This is how we come to know God. It's not by tradition. It's not by any work that we do. It is, it is from God Himself. And so we come to be saved by God through a knowledge of the gospel through scripture alone. We do not need tradition. We do not need any man's opinion. We come in scripture alone by God's grace alone, not ourselves, through faith alone in Christ alone, no other mediator or savior. And all of this is to the glory of God alone. In other words, simply this, salvation is not about us. Salvation is not earned by us. Salvation is about God and what He does for sinners. And so as the great theologian B.B. Warfield would look back on the Reformation, he would say all of its theology was bound up in this, an apprehension of God in majesty. An apprehension of God in majesty. And if I were to point to any one problem in the church today, any one problem in the church that would help account for all of the other problems in the church today, I would say probably it's at this very point. We have lost a real and pervasive sense of the majesty of God. We have mistaken lightness 
for intimacy, sincerity for orthodoxy, and relevance for godliness. In other words, we have taken God sometimes obviously, sometimes implicitly, and we have moved him out of the center of our lives, the lives of our church, and we have put ourselves in his place. This is the reason why we come back again and again and again every week to God's word. We come back again and again to draw our minds into what God himself says should be our focus, what God himself says should be the way that we achieve that focus, namely himself. And part of the way that we are helped in this is by thinking through the history of the church and how people have got this right and how people have got this wrong. By following good examples and casting off bad examples. And so this morning, as we think about the Reformation, you understand that these guys are not Protestant saints. They're not perfect men who got everything right. There are many things we would disagree with in terms of Luther and Calvin and Knox and these men. And yet, they got the essence of the gospel right and the essence of the emphasis of God being the center of all things. And so this morning, as we look to God's word, What I want us to do is see this very emphasis from Romans chapter 11. Namely, if we were to think about those five slogans, we want to think about soli deo gloria. Namely, to the glory of God alone. And before we dive into the verses of Romans 11, we need to understand where is Paul at in his argument in the book of Romans. You understand that essentially Romans is one big long argument. It's him making the case that Jewish Christians and Roman Christians should love one another, should be unified together in serving God because of what God has done for them. And so in the opening chapters, he brings both groups to their knees. He humbles them by reminding them of God's glory and man's idolatrous idolatrous rejection of that glory as they worship other things. He says, you Gentiles, you worship false gods. And you Jews, you never worship God the way you were supposed to. Sometimes you would try and make God into your own image, like the golden calf. Sometimes you would follow after the pagan gods, and you would worship them as well. He says, everybody is a sinner. No one is righteous before God. No, not one. And yet God has made provision that we might be saved from our sin, from the wrath that is coming because of our sin, through His Son, Jesus Christ. How does that work? Paul explains in chapters 4 through 8 that essentially all of history comes down to two men, Adam and Christ. And in Adam, our, the first man, our representative of all humanity, in him we are dead because of our trespasses and sins. But now God has sent the new man, the new Adam, his own son Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. And if we put our faith in him, then we are considered in him. And if we are in him, then we are dead in Adam, we are now alive in Christ. Having experienced not only forgiveness of sins, but also an ongoing cleansing from sin. That comes as God gives us his spirit allowing us to, to live in, the way, in ways that glorify God. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul then asks this question, what about Israel? What about God's covenant people? He says the thing that grieves him the most, the thing that is most astonishing is that though Jesus came as the, as the Jewish Messiah in fulfillment of promises to Israel, though not just to Israel but for the world, Israel has largely rejected the Messiah. And Paul says, what does this mean? Does this mean the promise of God has failed? And he says, no, because not all Israel is Israel. Just because 
people were ethnically Jewish does not mean that they were truly believers. They were true Jews in that sense. And so Paul says that even among ethnic Israel, God has preserved a remnant of real believers in him, of people who have trusted in the Messiah. And that though now the gospel is exploding among the Gentiles people, one day, one day God will again draw ethnic Israel to himself through faith in Christ. And so what has he done but stood at the very beginning of history and worked his way forward up through his day, showing the mighty hand of God at work. And what does he do? He stops and offers nothing, nothing less than a declaration of praise and worship to God. Our passage this morning, beginning at verse 33 of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift to, a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right after these words comes Romans chapter 12, which is a great hymns passage building on all the theology that Paul has laid out in the first 11 chapters and now begins specific application. The question is, how does that relate to your lives today, Jews and Gentiles? And, and for us as Christians as well, what does that mean for how we live our lives practically? And so notice what happens here. Paul begins with theology, teaching about God. That moves him to doxology, the worship of God, which in turn leads, leads him to sociology, loving and serving the one true and living God. And all of that is meant to bring glory to God. And so there's a whole sermon there, isn't there, about the fact that, that if we put God at the center and we start with God, then not only will our thoughts about him be right, but that means our worship of him will be right, which means how we live every day will be right before him. That's the outline of Romans, and it's in this very middle section here as we see the move from theology to doxology to sociology that we want to spend our time. Paul says that glory should be to God forever. What does it mean? What is this glory of God? Well, it means the, the visible splendor of his moral beauty and, beauty and the completeness of his perfections. In other words, it is the greatness of God on display as God. God is unique and like no other. Uh, just last night, I, I had posted something on Facebook and someone responded and they were shocked that Mormons don't believe the same thing about Jesus that we believe. Fundamentally shocked. And so often when you try and tell people what false uh, religions believe, uh, they will come back and say, well, they don't really believe that. Come on. I mean, I mean, they don't really believe that. And so my aim was always to quote directly from their sources. So I posted this massive quote on Facebook where they they say, God and humanity are not two different species. They are the exact same, just on a different perspective. So a man is just a less glorious version of God, while God is a more glorious version of man. Friends and loved ones, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God, as we will see in this passage, is so far above and beyond us that there is, there is hardly a comparison that is there. Yes, we reflect Him but in a way that the moon reflects the light of the sun at night. If you were to put the sun and the moon next to each other, what you would find is far, far different things in its very essence and nature and quality. So it also is with God. 
He is all glorious in his perfections. And Paul says that needs to be seen. It needs to be seen by us and by all the world. And the question then that he's seeking to answer is, that is what he's already said, it leads to this conclusion is, what is the glory of God? What does it look like? Why is it that God is so great that he should be made glorious for everyone to see? Well, that's what we see in these verses. And we see at least three things here. First of all, we see that God should be glorified because of his infinite attributes. Because of God's infinite attributes. Pastor Legan Duncan describes a time in the life of his father who served with the Marines in the South Pacific during World War II. Listen to what he says. His division was being moved from Palau and the battlefront there on towards Japan in preparation for the evasion of the mainland of Japan. And they stopped the fleet of ships over the Great Marianas Trench. It is the deepest body of water anywhere in the world. It is so deep you could put Mount Everest into the Great Marianas Trench and the top of Mount Everest would still be 1,000 feet below sea level. Is a tremendous place. And so they stopped this fleet of ships and they said to all of the men, would you like to jump off the deck of the ship and swim in the great Marianas Trench so you can go back and tell your family that you have swum in the deepest part of the ocean and anywhere in the world? My father said that he foolishly decided to join the men that were doing this. So they dove off the deck of the ship. He said when he hit the water, he went down and down and down and quickly began to wonder if he was ever going to come back up again. He said it was a strange thing to finally come back up to the surface to know that he could have gone down another 30,000 feet before he touched bottom. It was completely beyond him. He said, quote, I couldn't even comprehend how deep this water was. Paul just spent 11 chapters trying to trace out the will and ways of God and he comes to the same conclusion. Not in frustration, but in praise. Paul bursts forth, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. There is a depth and an infinite to the attributes of God. One that means we will never reach the bottom of who God is. Never. And verse 33 describes us in three ways. First, we see God's resources are unreachable. God's resources are unreachable. What resources of God? Well, frankly, three. His riches, His wisdom, and His knowledge. Riches refers to the infinite resources of God which flow from His divine blessings, specifically the saving kindness He has shown us sinners by extending His grace towards us. We've already mentioned this several times today. This grace has come through the personal work of Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised again from the dead for the salvation of sinners. He was their substitute in righteousness and in condemnation. And we receive the unfathomable riches of God's grace through Him. Wisdom and knowledge are intimately connected. The knowledge of God is, it mean, does not mean our knowledge of God, but rather God's knowledge, the knowledge that He has. What does He have? He knows everything. That's the level of God's knowledge. And wisdom speaks to the way that God applies that knowledge and His riches to accomplish His purposes. Again, explicitly, His saving purposes. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. There is an immeasurable depth to the knowledge and wisdom of God in applying the riches of His resources for the salvation of His people. He not only knows how to achieve salvation and to do it well, to do it rightly, justly, but he has the power and the authority to do it. 
God doesn't simply know what history is going to be. He defines what history will be. He shapes what history will be. He brings it about. Now that, that's just an astounding thought. Stop back on the edge of this, uh, of this magnificent pronunciation of worship on God and think about what, what, what is going on in Paul's mind. To get a small slice of it, think about, think about all that it took just for you to be sitting here today. Now, we, we don't have time to go back to Genesis 1-1. So let's just go back a couple thousand years. Let, let's go back to the Roman Empire. You think about all of the decisions, all of the movement of troops, life, death, blood, gore, birth. Anyway, everything that took place for the rise of the Roman Empire to occur and then for its fall to take place. As Rome begins to wane and the shift goes up towards northern Europe and the Germanic tribes that are there, how civilization develops in Europe, the expansion of the church goes there, all the way to the great reformation of the church that we're talking about today. This led to immigration to this country, the establishment of its government, making this place of prosperity where your family could grow and expand until your parents met, married, and had you. Then there's the millions of details and decisions that brought you to hear the gospel and believe and be sitting here today. You think about every time someone chose right or left. Every time someone chose sin or righteousness. Every time a king signed an edict. Every time a farmer put his plow to the ground. You think about the, the minutia of countless, countless, countless details that took place to bring you all sitting here today hearing this poor preacher preach this magnificent passage of God's word. And what Paul says is, we're nowhere near the depths of God's wisdom and his knowledge and his riches in bringing about history. In his infinite attributes, we secondly see that God's judgments are unsearchable. His judgments are unsearchable. To talk of God's judgments means his judicial decisions. That is God's ability, His right to pronounce condemnation on the wicked and to extend forgiveness to believers. Paul says as we attempt to look into these things, we find them to be unsearchable. In other words, we, we never, we never reach the boundaries of it. So, so imagine that you were given the task of creating, you know, pa Pastor Joe did an amazing cartographic job this morning in Sunday school laying out the world of of the early church on the whiteboard, but imagine that he was given the task of a life-size map of the universe. Think about that. Not just his, his city, not just his town, this earth, but the universe. Would he ever be able to accomplish that task? No, obviously not. And Paul is saying here, as we try to find the end, as we try to search out and find the boundaries of God's judgments, it's never going to happen. They're too far above and beyond us. And so that leads him finally to say that God's ways are unfathomable. God's ways are unfathomable. This is closely related to what he said in terms of his judgments. The ways of God speak to how the judgments that God makes are applied into the real world. In other words, God's judgments are not abstract. They're felt in the everyday realities of life. Several years ago, John Piper said that he was listening to a, an interview on NPR, which is always a gamble. But nevertheless, he's listening to this interview on NPR when this sophisticated woman spoke authoritatively on religion. In fact, that's why she was there, was to be interviewed. And here's what she said, quote, theology is poetry. Theology is poetry. 
He says the, the odd interviewer said, that's a beautiful thought. Say more about that, which she was happy to do, concluding with this statement, quote, after all, religion is a human art form. Here's what Piper says his response was to that. Quote, frankly, I wanted to throw up. But when the moral nausea passed, I prayed that God would open their eyes so they would no longer talk like three-year-olds who call their parents make-believe while they eat the supper daddy bought and mommy prepared. It was not a beautiful thought. It was a tragic and ugly thought. The riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God revealed in Scripture are not human art form. Biblical theology is not a poetic product of human imagination. When Paul says, oh, the depth, he means there is something down there. He has revealed something of it. He knows there's more. He is speaking of objective reality that God knows and we know in part. In other words, all of this thought of God's ways being higher than our ways and God's judgments being beyond us, all of that is true, but you understand all of that translates into real life. It translates into who you are at this very moment, who you have been and who you will be in light of who God is and forever will be. Thus, God's infinite attributes should lead us to give Him glory. Furthermore, God should be glorified because of His superior existence. Because of God's superior existence. That's the second thing that we see here. You say God's superior existence. What is He superior to? Well, the, the short answer is everything. But specifically, I want us to think about us. God is superior to you and to me. Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Now, what you need to see is that in verses 34 and 35, Paul is offering these three rhetorical questions in response to each of the attributes that he has just given. In verse 33, so because of the depth of God's knowledge, who can know the mind of God? Because of the depth of God's wisdom, who can be his counselor? Because of the depth of God's riches, who can give him a gift that he might be repaid? Do you see what he's doing there? And so we can turn these three questions around into three statements about God's superior existence. First, we can say this, God cannot be comprehended. God cannot be comprehended. Now, let's be clear what we're saying here. We're not saying that humanity can't know anything of God. Of course we can. By virtue of the fact that we just said God has a superior existence means we know something of God, right? I'm making statements about God. How am I doing that, though? Because I'm reading from God's Word. God is the one who is telling us about Himself. God has revealed Himself to us. What that means is we can know God truly. There is an argument that says that if you can't know everything exhaustively, that means if you can't ever know everything there is to know about that thing, then you can't actually know anything for sure about that thing. That's a logical fallacy, number one. But second of all, we can say, even apart from philosophy, that doesn't work because God himself says, here's who I am, but I'm not telling you all there is to know about me. So so, so if a God of infinite being, of superior existence says, here's a little taste of who I am, number one, we can be sure that what he's telling us is true. We can be confident in that, but we can also know we're never going to know God fully. So we can know something of God, but we won't know all of God. That's what we're talking about when we talk about God not being able to be comprehended. So think about the Vikings coming to North America. They, They get off the boat at the Atlantic coast and they 
you know, hang out for a couple weeks, a couple months, whatever it was. They think about establishing a little settlement and they have interaction with the original peoples. They perhaps hunt, maybe even they do a little bit of farming, but they sustain themselves and then they go back on the, the, the boat to their homeland. What, when they go back, what do they say? Can they say that we got a glimpse of this new land? Yeah. Can they say we enjoyed the resources of that land and food and in provision of shelter? Yeah. Can they say, we know everything there is to know about this new land and there's no need to go back? No, not at all. They only got a glimpse of it, right? And that's what we're talking about in terms of comprehending God. We cannot comprehend him in his fullness. Moreover, God cannot be comprehended. But secondly, God has no counselors. God has no counselors. Verse 34, Paul asks, who has been his counselor? And the answer is no one. That's the implied answer there. Isn't it amazing though that today lots of people want to be God's counselor? Lots of people want to tell God how to run the world, the universe, and even their life. Some people will read his word and say, well, that's nice, but, you know, the people were more primitive, primitive back then. We know things are different now. There's a new moral standard. Or they work at the, look at the world, they say, well, things, God, aren't going very well. You should really, you should really change your approach here. And for Paul, that's just the height of hubris. That's just the height of arrogance and pride. Who can give counsel to God is his question. Who can give him advice on how history should run its course? Who can advise him on the steps that our own lives should take? See, but Paul, you haven't experienced my life. You haven't seen pain. You haven't seen suffering. Oh, wait a minute. Let's stop and think again about the context of this passage. Again, chapters 9 through 11 are kind of one big chunk, and this is coming at the end of 11. Do you know how 9 begins? It begins with Paul completely dejected. It begins with Paul upset because he's looking at his fellow Jews, he himself a Jew, saying, why aren't they trusting their Savior? Of all the people in the world, why aren't the people of Israel looking to Jesus and believing? The covenants are theirs. The law is theirs. The the grace of God has been upon them and he is here for them, but he is rejecting them. And he says, "I, I wish, I wish that I could send myself to hell if it meant that all of the Jewish people would turn to Jesus in faith. You would think of all people, Paul would be able to stand back and say, God, this doesn't seem to, to go, to flow with the plan that you presented in the old covenant. Let me offer you some counsel here. Extend your sovereign grace and call them all to yourself in faith. God, obviously, this is what needs to happen. But notice that that is not Paul's response. Paul does not look at the world going away that he thinks is is not the best way it should go. Or at the very least, in a way that makes him happy, we might say. Nevertheless, he bows and he acknowledges this is the best way because God is the one who has determined it to be. He doesn't despair, ultimately. He trusts God. He worships God. He gives him glory. He says, who has been his counselor? Not me, he says, and not you. God's existence is superior and worthy of glory. God cannot be comprehended. God has no counselors. And finally, we see that God has no creditors. God has no creditors. Verse 35, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? Again, You hear people say things like sometimes, after all I've done for God, he owes me. He owes me. Or God will never let anything bad happen to me. Look at all that I do for him. Paul says that's completely antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Paul is saying here, you have nothing to offer God. 
that would cause him to feel that he needs to repay you. In fact, just the opposite is true. You are so far in debt to God that it can never be repaid. You're breathing God's air right now. You're breathing God's air. He made it. It belongs to him. You're living on God's earth. You're enjoying God's salvation. You pay for food and clothing by work that you do, by the life and strength and mental health that God himself gives you. You believe in Christ and bear fruit of righteousness in his name as God's people because of the faith that God has given you. You will never be in God's debt, but you will always be. Or God will never be in debt to you, but you will always be in debt to him. And that brings us to the last assertion that Paul makes about the basis for giving God glory. We've seen his infinite character and his superior existence. And now in verse 36, we see God's ultimate nature. God's ultimate nature. So Paul grounds, that is, he he provides the basis for all that he has said in verses 33 through 35 and verse, verse 36. So let's listen to it again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Why? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, to him be glory forever. Amen. Theologian Sam Storm says, when we think about a passage like this, we should think about building a house. He says, what do you do? Quote, the first thing you do is hire an architect who draws up the blueprints. He formulates the plans and lists any specifications on how everything is to be constructed. Then you contact the builder, the person who actually puts brick and mortar and nail to wood. The house is then put up for use for which it was built. You move in, you occupy it, you enjoy it. Finally, as its inhabitant and owner, you maintain it. You're careful to make timely repairs and perhaps put a a little bit of remodeling here and there. And here's the reality when it comes to the universe. God fulfills all of those things. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the very goal of everything that was created. Thus, God's ultimate nature is seen first in that he is the source of all things. God is the source of all things. Paul says that from him are all things. What does that mean? That means that it all came from God if it's here. If you can think it, if you can touch it, it's from God. He created everything. And he created everything from nothing. No matter, no energy, no spare blueprint left behind a bookcase for a uh, hundred thousand million billion years. They said, oh, this is cool. We should do this. No, 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 no. It all started with him. It all started with him. The very idea of creation came to God and he made it. From beginning to end, it all came from him. So pigeons and pine cones and pumpkins and people's personalities, from beginning to end, they all came from him. Mountains and marlins and mandrakes and mitochondrial DNA. From beginning to end, they all came from him. The sea and stones and squirrels and cinnamon spice. From beginning to end, they all came from him. God is the very source of all things, including you. Including you. And notice, God secondly is the means of all things. He is the means of all things. God says, through him are all things. In other words, God didn't just create the world and let it go on its own. He didn't just start it up and set it it moving. It wasn't a a, a pullback wind-up toy that my kids get at McDonald's all the time where you let it go across the the kitchen floor it goes. That's not the universe. 
that God made. He is sustaining it even now. Every burning star in every galaxy, every newborn baby being knit together in its mother's womb, every bee pollinating flowers, leaving the most delicious honey in the world behind, every cell of hair growing on your body, God has and forever will sustain its existence. Not just the physicality though, also the spirituality. You are here living out the faith that you once professed because God is sustaining you. God is holding you. God is keeping your foot from sliding. So not just the physical health that you may enjoy or may not enjoy, which God is providing, but also the very spiritual life that you are enjoying comes from God. God's nature is that of an ultimate being. He is the source of all things. He is the means of all things. And finally, He is the goal of all things. He is the goal of all things. Paul says, to Him are all things. To Him are all things. The children of the reformers in England would craft a catechism asking at the very beginning, what is the chief end of man? That is, why are we here? Why did God make us? What are we supposed to be doing? What is the one goal that should shape us and all that we think and do and say? The answer was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that reason is a, is a, that answer rather is a good answer because we see it all throughout the Bible. So we can ask the question, why did God create us? In Isaiah 43, 6 through 7, he says that salvation will go to all people and he will gather them from afar. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why did God choose to save us even before creating us? Ephesians 1. God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. Why did God send His Son to be our Savior? Jesus said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Why does God make us holy? Paul says in Philippians 1, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more and more so that you may approve what is excellent and to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Why will God return to the earth ending history as we know it allowing us to share in the eternity of heaven? 2 Thessalonians 1, Those who reject the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord from the glory of His might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marvel at among all who believe. What's the point? It's not about us. It's not about us. Our life is not about us. This church is not about us. This world is not about us individually or corporately as humanity. It is all about God. From him and through him and to him are all things. That means all of us. All of us as well. This is why John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, had a personal seal that accompanied all of his letters. These days we don't, we don't even hardly use, send a letter. But back then they would seal it up, wax, put it in there. And when people looked, they knew it was from Calvin because this seal had a hand offering up a heart. And in Latin, around the seal were these words, I offer my heart to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. That's the very essence of the Reformation. That's the very essence of the passage that we're looking at. The way that we respond to these verses, the way we respond to the vision of God that Paul lays out here in all of his majesty, all of his glory, should be the offering up of our hearts to God in all things, promptly and sincerely. That means we hold nothing back and we do it with all sincerity, with all joy. We say, God, it is about you. 
All glory be to you, which means my life is about you and not about me. That's how we respond to this passage. That's how we seek to live soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Father, we can't do that apart from you. We can't live that way apart from you. God, your grace needs to be operating in our life. We need you to bring about change in our thinking and in our affections. God, we need you so that we can live for you. So God, I pray that you would do that now, that you would cause this passage to to sit in our minds and our hearts for days to come, that we would continually think about why you should be glorified because of your infinite, superior, ultimate nature as the God of all things. God, we so often put ourselves at the center, but only you belong at the center, God. Allow us to live this way. Allow us to think this way in all things. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.